0: Welcome to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Kasten Smith, and I am your host. With me today is Will Bushman, our color commentator and director of student ministries here at Rio. It's Christmas. It is Christmas. And so that sets up what we're going to be doing for the next, we're planning on four weeks, but we'll see. Will and I are not known for our planning skills or organizational skills. But the way that we want to lay this out is walking through the typical passages that deal with the nativity. So we're going to be hitting on Luke chapter 1 and 2 and Matthew chapter 1 and 2, and we'll probably be meandering into some of the prophetic passages of the Old Testament that are very famous that have to do with the Christmas story that are really, really relevant here. I feel short of breath. Like, I've been battling sickness, and I don't feel like I got my breath back. Yeah, you you look like you're running out there. All right, so, Will, if I were to put, put it to you and say, okay, here are the, the big moments in, in Christian celebration, the big holidays, and you were to line them up, so you had Christmas, you had Easter, you had Pentecost, if you were to line all of them up, the Ascension, uh, what would you say is the most important
1: one in your book? In my book? I was actually thinking about this last night in a weird way just when I was alone, which is weird. <laughs> um, I think it's, it's Christmas. Christmas would be most important to you? I think so. All right. Even, But I felt bad because I thought, no, Christmas more in my mind than even Easter, because that's like, but even in my own mind, I was like, that's a little weird, Will. Are you allowed to say that? Now I'm saying it recording, so this is bad.
0: But even to think <laughs> that like,
1: because, you know, it's the cross of Jesus, it's the cross of Jesus, and obviously we are saved by the cross of Jesus. But mm-hmm. then I was thinking, Jesus can't go to the cross unless he's born. Mm-hmm. So if we don't have a good, you know, theology of the incarnation, then all of that, loses its luster a little bit. Mm-hmm.
0: It's really fascinating. I was coming across somebody, and they were talking about which is the most miraculous, because like my instinct says it's got to be the resurrection, because our faith, and Paul talks about how if the resurrection's not true, then we're to be pitied above all people. Like Our faith lives and dies with the resurrection, no pun intended. But Christmas is really, really a big deal, because the incarnation, when we think of it we tend to think of it as, oh, cute, you know, a baby in a manger, and it's nice, and you know, this pregnant woman, and you know, you you tend to like humanize it, which is a very, very good thing to do. But if you stop for a moment and you try to to enter into the Christmas story from God's perspective, God who had for all of eternity past reigned over creation. And, and before then, you know, and the Godhead of the Trinity existed for all of eternity in perfect harmony and relationship. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus covenants that he is entering into the world as a man, and he will never, ever return to a pre-human state. So right now in heaven, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, reigns at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us as a human— and so, in some sense, Christmas wasn't just a moment. It was a pledge that God says, from here on, forever into the future, I am marrying myself to humanity. This is now part of my nature. I have the divine nature, human nature married in, in one person of the Trinity. And so Christmas is incredibly costly. And you think about, you know, the cross is this moment where Jesus takes all the sin of the world on himself. He takes all the wrath he, you know, in the in the ancient world, you know, they would say that he suffered the penalties of hell, descended into hell, suffered death for three days. Incredibly costly. Like you can look at that and say, that cost Jesus mightily. Hmm. But you don't stop typically to to count up the cost of what it would have meant for the God of the universe to become a baby. You know, leaving the praises of angels, being being a person that that enters into our experience, knowing hunger, knowing all of those kinds of things, knowing what it's like to be betrayed or disrespected, poor, poverty, all of that kind of stuff, Jesus says, I'll take that to myself. And so I've preached this before where there's two great falls in some sense that Jesus accomplishes, and the first one, he goes from being the very, very highest being and he'll remain the highest being I'm not saying he sets that aside but he goes from being god as a spirit second person of the trinity and he comes down mm-hmm. to take up flesh in a fallen world and he will experience suffering and he will experience all of the things that a broken and sinful world will have and then at the cross he falls even farther you know to to where he he falls a greater distance in the scope of his ministry, from being God to being punished in the wrath of God, descending to the depths of hell for us, he plummets farther than Satan fell hmm. for you. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're
1: looking at... You're, no, no, you I, I'm just processing like, that, That just that last line about Satan. I was like, oh, yeah. I've never I mean, heard that, yeah.
0: So Satan is a created being that's underneath God. Yeah, no, I'm with falls you. Falls down to the world as a fallen creature. Jesus is gonna plummet farther and take on judgment that he does not deserve, to the very depths of hell and all of wickedness poured on top of him. And so between those two things, they're unbelievably costly. But hmm. it's it's not like Christmas is, oh, you know, that cost God a lot to marry himself to humanity. And it's like he burned the ship. He was united to yeah. us
1: forever in that moment. Do you think we glamorize that because when we look at the cross, it's horrific and it's almost impossible other than just like the victory we get? Mm-hmm. But like in the act of Jesus, it, it's really hard to glamorize that. Well, then we look at Christmas and we do glamorize it, even mm-hmm. though you're saying it, it is a fall just like that. And the question is, do you think that's the cultural glamorization of it because of what we've made it around the religious? Or do you think that's just we really don't understand what the incarnation was? It's that we don't understand what the incarnation was. Yeah.
0: You know, like, we don't look back at our birth and go, that cost us a lot. (laughs) Like, that's our beginning. And we tend—most people, there's tons of people in the church who do not know that Jesus is the eternal God. Like, they don't know that. They think, okay, Jesus came into being at Christmas, and he was born, and, and, you know, there he was. They don't think, okay, this is an eternal being that now comes and inhabits human form. And that it would have been costly. Like, you go from being the omnipotent God, you know, capable of producing the universe by the power of your word, to now all of a sudden you're pooping your diapers, and you can't lift your neck because you're too weak as a newborn. You know, like, the the humility that's displayed by God, like—and and by the way, Jesus takes on a human brain, and he has to learn, and he has to experience things, and it's not like at, at you know, one day old he's going— well, this is no good. <laughs> I was much happier in the throne. Like he takes on a human brain, and yet in his spirit, he's experienced this extraordinary fall. Like he would have been, he will forever look back and know what he had left, what he entered into. It's kind of a wild thing to try to imagine the balance of those two things. And yet, that's exactly what he experienced. So we don't. When we think of Christmas, we don't imagine, man, God gave up so much to enter into humanity. Yeah. We just think, oh, that's the beginning of Jesus. Well, no. (laughs) No. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and without the Word, there's nothing made, John says. Nothing in the universe was made without Him. He's the Creator. Um, And so we don't tend to imagine Christmas as being something that's extraordinarily generous from God. In terms of he left a lot behind to enter the human experience,
1: and just because our, our Bibles lead us this way, but we go from Christmas to maybe that brief passage when he's in his teens, and then we go straight to miracle Jesus. We forget that like Jesus mm-hmm. came to Earth, and he waited so long for that moment mm-hmm. to begin his public ministry. Yeah. So like Jesus at birth to Jesus, you know, till close to his thirties. You know, that's a long waiting game to play as just mm-hmm. a normal mundane human that's, that's right. eternally God. And I I just, that wow, that's wowing me this Christmas, just mm-hmm. like, because I hate to wait for anything. <laughs> like, and, but we talked about this off air, like just the waiting in the Bible is all over the place and Jesus doesn't excuse himself from that. Mm-hmm. Like he could have stepped down an instant and saved us. Mm-hmm. And yet he chose to come down and he played this waiting game. He, he lived life. He was fully human yet fully God, but like, fully human for 30 years going through all of that. That's mm-hmm. a lot to take in. And you gain, like when when you're talking
0: about at, at the age of 12 when he goes to the temple and he says, you know, I'm, I'm about my father's business. He knows who he is. He's impressing them with his understanding of the scriptures. When he's reading Isaiah 53 about all the wounds of the Messiah, he knows it's him, mm-hmm. even at that young age. And yet he doesn't make a public move to let everybody know that it is him until he's in his 30s. So he has to deal in his humility with everybody treating him like he's some average, you know, joe. He's just the average carpenter. He has to learn what it's like to pay bills and to meet needs and to wonder why everybody's talking about him being a 30-year-old first-century Jew who hasn't taken a wife yet, you know. Like Jesus mm-hmm. experienced lots of stuff and more than what we experience before he ever said, you know, here here we go. It's the 3 years of my public ministry I'm out yeah. there like he was having to maintain his righteousness prior to that there was no doubt he was talked about as being the son of a of a you know a bastard child with a mother who you know claimed to be impregnated by the spirit like all of these things would have been against him and i can tell you in the first century to not take a wife when you reach the age of adulthood and your teens
1: which is pretty young like we're not yeah. we're not like oh he he was yeah. thirty, and he just missed it by a couple of years. And he didn't yeah. get married at twenty eight, right? Exactly, which is the average now. Back then, it would have been like,
0: do you do you like girls? Yeah, you know what's what's wrong with this guy? Why does he not want a wife? And yet he knows that he has to carry out this plan according to the father's will. So it's costly to him before he ever has his public ministry. So yeah, and like you're talking about, Jesus knows the pain of the mundane life. Yeah of just having to do your work and pay your bills and that's pretty wild that God experiences that but why does he experience that? Cuz he want cuz
1: it's full humanity?
0: Yeah, his well, full humanity and there's nothing that he can't relate to. Hmm. So, yeah. you know, I remember having a conversation with Laura a long time ago after we watched the first Chronicles of Narnia movie and I was I love the movie but in the book but I'm kind of annoyed with it because there's like this big climactic battle and it's like all right you know the faith and going against evil and it's this really one moment where it's like raw charge you know battle scene and the reality is the christian faith is a lot more of the mundane it's yeah. it's dealing with hardships and evil and pain and sadness and disease and and it doesn't just happen in this climactic battle where you just get to say okay today we're in it's every day that grind and to know that Jesus experienced that too, not just the climaxes and not just the cool miracles and the crucifixions. Yeah. No, every day he had to set himself toward righteousness. He never slipped up, not once. His entire life lived without sin. That means every day he was living it out and avoiding the, the shortcuts and, and taking on the, the mockery and everything else without lashing out. Like, every day was faithful. And why was He faithful every day? Because that's your righteousness He was winning, because He gives it away. When He goes to the cross, every day's faithfulness through all the mundane was also a demonstration of His love for you. So all that to say that sidetrack is Christmas is wild. Yeah. The incarnation is absolutely wild. And then when you get to the cross... It's wild because here you have God and man and one person who's being put to death to make men like God. Then you get to the ascension and here's the crazy part. This is now a man for the first time ever kicking open the doors of heaven. Jesus left heaven as a as a spirit to become a man and now man is returning and kicking open the gates of heaven to sit at the right hand of God and right now a man is God reigning from the throne, advocating for you right now. So the ascension is this huge deal. Everything, it's like you know one of those holidays on top of the next, you know, Good Friday's wild, the resurrection's wild. Now the ascension is wild, and you get to take comfort in knowing that the God of the universe is a man advocating on your behalf, and the Bible tells us that he ever always lives to intercede for you. That's what he's doing right now. It's wild. Yeah, and he knows exactly what he's doing. Mm-hmm. That's right, because he walked here. <laughs> That's right, but none of this happens without the incarnation. And so, jumping into Luke, the the open of the nativity story. When you jump into Luke, first off, you have Luke who's writing to a guy named Theophilus, which tells us he's writing to a Greek audience. These aren't. He's not writing to fellow Jews primarily. He's writing to to create a history for a guy named Theophilus, this Greek guy, and he starts by telling you about the birth of John the Baptist. And this is a really, really important thing that the Jews would have been looking for. The Old Testament prophets end just before 400 BC, right? And then you have this long period of silence, four centuries of silence, which should remind you of something. When's the last time you had four centuries of what felt like God's silence,
1: uh, slavery in
0: Egypt. The slavery in Egypt, right? And then God brings a deliverer who's going to lead people out of the land of death and bondage by doing what? By, being, by taking a, a spotless lamb and taking his blood and marking it on homes, and then they'll escape. And so it's setting up. Here comes another deliverer after 400 years. At the, the end of all the prophetic fury that happened right up until 400 B.C., the last prophet who writes was a guy named Malachi. If you open up your Bible to Malachi chapter 4, what you'll find is Malachi closes out the Old Testament by saying this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. So that's how the Old Testament ends, right? Elijah's coming back. Well, that's a really weird thing for Malachi to say, because Elijah lived 450 years prior to Malachi writing this. And so it's like, wait a minute, okay, Elijah left, and one of the things that's unique about Elijah is he doesn't die, he gets in a chariot of fire, he goes to heaven. That's a really, really unique story in the Bible. And Malachi is saying, okay, before the great day of the Lord and everything that the Old Testament's been building up toward, Elijah has to come back. So that's why if you go to... Jewish festivals, or Passover, they still leave a chair out for Elijah. Elijah. Because before all of this can kind of come to its consummation, Elijah has to come back because that's what Malachi told us. And so when you jump to Luke 1, he's going to make this really big deal about John the Baptist. Well, why is that? Well, pay attention as we, we go through this narrative, and you'll see why. So it says in verse 5, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, that's Herod the Great, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And there were 24 divisions of different priests, and so they took turns being on duty at the temple. And so Zechariah is a priest, and it's his turn to go to the temple. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Well, that's also from the tribe of Levite. It's it's the priestly line. Aaron was the very first high priest over Israel. So both Zechariah and Elizabeth come from the priestly line, and it says they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Could could a book be written and, and say that about you, Will? Uh,
1: no, definitely not.
0: <laughs> so these are really incredible people. They're walking blamelessly, you know, which is, is something to say. That doesn't mean they're sinless, by the way, but it means that they're tremendously godly people. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years— and immediately when you hear that what what where does your brain go? We've heard this before. That's right. This a- is like Abraham the, and Sarah. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca. You know, you go down the list there are so many women in the Old Testament that are that are hit with barrenness and what makes it so important is the promise of the Messiah is coming through a particular line, right? It's yeah. coming through Abraham. Well, his wife is barren. Until God. Seems to stop the lineage real quick. Yeah. And then Isaac, well, his wife is barren. Until God. And then Jacob and his wife struggles with fertility. Until God. And you go through the line, and every time, even even Leah for a season has to have her womb reopened, right? And so you see this again and again, where God is overcoming barrenness or lifelessness to bring forth life. And so when you hear that Elizabeth is barren, if you know your Old Testament, you're like, uh-oh, here we go. And she's advanced in years. You remember how old Sarah was when she gave birth for the first time? Well beyond menopause. You know, this is, this is way, way up there. Like when she has Isaac, she's pretty close to 90 years old. Like that's wow. impossible. You hear that, and everything in you scientifically wants to say that's absurd. And the Bible wants you to think that's absurd. It's impossible. That doesn't happen because it doesn't unless God, right? And so now you have this barren woman who's beyond menopause. She's you know, there's there's no more childbearing years left. And it says while he, Zechariah was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And so so when you entered into the the opening room, the holy place of the temple, straight ahead before you got to the the temple veil, there was an altar of incense. And incense symbolized prayer, hmm. and that was the idea. So you're you're burning incense on top of this golden altar, and that smoke that goes up. I mean, you can visualize it, it was to capture your senses. The smoke going up, it, it, it like took the prayers of the people up toward the heavens. And so the priest was chosen to go in there, burn incense, and then offer up prayers that were pretty set prayers. Of course, he would offer his own prayers at that moment. So verse 10, it says, and the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to Zechariah, an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. Like, (laughs) you you think? Classic. (laughs) And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, "Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard." Wouldn't that be that'd be amazing, right? Like you're you're sitting there, you're offering up prayer, you're watching the incense go up, and all of a sudden, an angel is standing right next to you and says, "Don't be afraid." Which firstly, yeah, yeah, get over the fear, yeah, because you're We're looking at a conversation. an angel, which is not a chubby baby floating on a cloud. They're ferocious creatures, right? So don't be afraid. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. So, what do, if you're Zechariah, what are you
1: thinking at this point? I mean, it's a wild scenario because this can't be the first time he's prayed it, right? You imagine over all these years, if they're both advanced in years and they've both been really wanting a child for this whole time, you know, I mean, I think lots of questions would pop in my head. Like, first, I hope there would be joy and there would be trust that this angel is telling, me, but I think there'd be a little bit of skepticism that says, hey, why now? I've prayed this thing a thousand times. What's going on now? And that's, that's behind the, the meaning of his name. John
0: literally means Yahweh is gracious. And so if you're Zechariah and Elizabeth, and you're like, God, please, God, please, and now he comes and gives you a son, something you've been asking for, and and the name is just the bow on top. You know, Yahweh is gracious. He hears you. He grants your request. He he desires, you know, for you to delight in Him. In verse 14, it says, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at His birth, for He will be great before the Lord. And He must not drink wine or strong drink, which is kind of like akin to the Nazarites of the Old Testament with these vows, And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember, if you go to the Old Testament, Samson, for example, is not allowed to cut his hair. He's not allowed to have strong drink. He's not allowed to touch dead things because he's a Nazarite, which means God would be with him in a special way. And the same is kind of indicated about John the Baptist. He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, which is—that's a whole nother thing, right? Yeah. That means, you know, salvation— if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that's basically akin to you have salvation. Right. Regeneration, right? Yeah. From the mother's womb. So that gets into the whole Calvinism debate of who chooses who. You know, is John in the mother's womb going, let me let me think about this. You're saying that if I accept Jesus into my heart, no, like that's not happening. He's filled with the Holy Spirit as a baby in the womb, which means God granted him salvation before John could choose God which is pretty wild. It says, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him, and hear this, remember where we were a minute ago, he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so as you read About the ministry of John the Baptist, he's described in many of the same ways as Elijah was. You know, both of them wear this garment of of camel leather and hair. You know, they're they're out in the wilderness. They're strange prophets that are not like your ordinary people. He's got the spirit and power of Elijah, and he's calling people to repentance. So both of their ministries are very, very similar. And later in the gospel, Jesus will say that. John the Baptist is the Elijah who was to come, and so this is the fulfillment. He is the one who came in the spirit and power of Elijah that Malachi said had to happen before the Savior of the world could come. Yeah, right. The same language there to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, like straight out of Malachi. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. So it's telling you this is the this is that guy. And so Zechariah said to the angel something that I would have said, I'm sure. Yeah, don't blame him for this. I'm not mad at him. Yeah, not at all. How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Pretty simple question, understandable. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And so one of the things that's really fascinating about this is Angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah, says... You're going to have a son. Zechariah is saying, Hold on a minute, like this doesn't make biological sense to me because I'm old and my wife is, you know, past childbearing years. So I've just got a simple question, like, how can this be? Right? Yeah. Yeah. And Gabriel's response is hush. <laughs> like just, you know, fingers closing the lips, right? And he's not allowed to talk again. Gabriel doesn't take away the promise. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't punish him beyond that. But it's like, because you question me, you're mute now until the day that you have a child. Gabriel, you know, months later, shows up to Mary, and what's he say? You're going to have a child. And what does Mary say? Do you remember? It's later on in this
1: chapter. Oh, she questions it too, right?
0: Yeah, she's like, she's like, hey maths not adding up i'm a virgin i'm missing a kind of an essential piece here and she says how will this be does that sound familiar it seems seems on par with what zechariah said yeah so zechariah says how can this be the biology doesn't work right and the angel says hey zechariah quiet you're going to be quiet for 9 months mary says the same thing how can this be since i'm a virgin the biology doesn't make sense yeah and what does gabriel do just tells her how it's going to happen yeah that's it like he, he just answers her question he answers the question he reassures her he's he's gentle with her the holy spirit will come upon you and you know he gives her the explanation why the difference i hope you know the answer <laughs> because now that you posed this question i have no idea so you have two different people one is presumably a 14-ish 15-ish year old young girl from this podunk town that Gabriel finds out in a field, and and here's this encounter. The other one is a priest who's in the temple. He now should know easy. better. That's right. He, he should he, know better. He
1: should know better. He should know Malachi ended like that, and here it is, right on his lips. That's right. And so you have you have
0: the angel Gabriel who's coming to somebody who has the seminary degree. Yeah. Who who is who is called to a specific office. And what does God do? He holds him to a higher standard. And notice, there's a consequence, and yet Zechariah doesn't lose his favor before God. He doesn't lose his Hmm. promise. Yahweh is still gracious, he still gives him a son, and Zechariah still leaves the temple, even though he can't talk, rejoicing at that. And yet what you see there is God comes to different people differently, right? To whom much is given... Much is required. And so, for people who put themselves out there in ministry, it's, this is kind of a scary little passage, right? You know, when God comes and says, Hey, Will, I, I want you to do this. Use yourself as an example. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a different animal than if God comes to one of your middle school students and says, Do this. You see how he's tender and patient with people where they're at. But if you put yourself out there as a man of the cloth, or, you know, somebody who should be a capable mouthpiece with courage to do what God has called you to do and yep. you balk, like God, God can be a little stern. And so that's something that's worth noticing for people in ministry. And also Mary's <laughs> Mary's stakes were a little bit
1: higher. Yeah. That's I true. mean, not you know, Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. I mean, John the Baptist will say that later on in his ministry. So that's a little more shock value that, like, no, this is Jesus <laughs> in your womb, not just John.
0: All right. All right, so John the Baptist leaves, verse 24, it says, After these days his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people.
1: What? Don't put this in the recording. Uh, but could you imagine that he can't speak? He knows this is going to have to be fulfilled. This is not going to be a Holy Spirit conception. This is going to be a physical conception to conceive John the Baptist. <laughs> That's right. Could you imagine this scenario actually playing out? That I think, would be a high-pressure moment Like, right there. yeah, you're trying to mime this out. This is definitely going in. You can, yeah, I should have known. Like, you can communicate. It's not like you can't communicate because he came out giving signs, and he's like, okay, what do we do now? Well, the answer is, Okay, if this is true, I need to fulfill this. Yeah. This looks like a really desperate husband. Yeah. Oh, no, really, babe. Really? There's an angel. I'm mute now. I can't really tell you about it. Yeah. But in nine months, I can tell you about this whole experience. This sounds like a
0: really serious, like, husband play. We can't talk about it. <laughs> yeah, It's like I can't communicate it because I'm a man. <laughs> oh, we're terrible. All right. So verse 26 in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel... So we've, we've talked about this and kind of given a spoiler alert, but here we go. The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. It's a small city up in Galilee. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one. Which is... That's pretty cool if an wow. angel comes to you and says, you know, remember John's name as Yahweh is gracious and now you're, he's coming to Mary this young girl, and I want you to imagine a messenger comes to you and says, do you know how much God favors you? Like, you are really special to him. Like, that's, that's just a cool way to come to Mary. And he says, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Like, if, if an angel comes to you and says that, you're waiting for, okay, and? <laughs> you know, the but. <laughs> and the angel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which the name Yeshua comes from Yahweh saves. So the name means God is bringing salvation. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. That's, th- these are all messianic titles. The Son of the Most High, he's going to be on the throne of David. Mary's going to know exactly what this means, that from the beginning of Genesis 3, when God promised to send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the snake, and along the way, the Savior of the world is accruing all these titles, right? Well, now the angel Gabriel's looking at Mary and saying, you're that woman, Remember back in Genesis 3 when all of humanity fell apart and God promised that the seed of the woman, singular, hmm. was going to come and crush the head of the snake? You're that woman, Mary. you imagine what that must have been like to hear that? Honestly, no. Wild. Like all of redemptive history is now coming to you. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary looks at the angel and says, how will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel, again, shows compassion and gives her a response. There's no rebuke here. Verse 35, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be born, and will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age also has conceived a son, And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And so what he's saying is, the miracle of me producing life inside of a barren womb, it's every bit as impossible. Like, if there's no eggs, you're you're postmenopausal, like, what is God? He's creating life where life is impossible. And now he's doing the same with Mary, except this time he's saying it's going to be the Holy Spirit who impregnates you. And Mary said, and this is wild. This is, this is what differentiates also Mary <laughs> from Zechariah, is she says, Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Like, she didn't say, Okay, hold on a minute. I got, I got questions, <laughs> you know. It's, Be it done unto me. I'm your servant. And that's it. And the angel departs. Like, there's no follow-up conversation of, All right, so, so hold on. Let me tell you what this means for me which in the ancient world, if you were unmarried and all of a sudden you ended up pregnant, the law of Moses required for you to be put to death for adultery. So she doesn't say, are you going to protect me? She doesn't yeah. say, hey, let's come up with a game strategy because this is really going to embarrass my fiancé Joseph. She doesn't, like, this is really going to impact my life and I my parents might disown me, my communities might disown me, this child's going to be considered a bastard child— Like you've just tossed me an outrageously difficult mission that's going to be tremendously costly to me. When the angel came, he may as well have said this you are highly favored by God, but you are about to lose your favor with everyone else. Hmm. I mean, and Mary says, "All All right, okay, be it done unto me. Like that's another thing. Like when the word of God comes to take up residence in you, which by the way, in that sense, we're all kind of a Mary. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells in you, and, and the word of God takes root in you. I mean, not as a biological living form, but that's essentially what happens. There's a there's an incarnation where where Christ by the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us and to take over our lives so that he then lives through us as we die to ourselves. And so, in every time, I mean, that's that's the bargain that he makes with every single Christian. It's like, hey, God's favor rests on you, but he's asking you: Are you willing to let go of the favor of everyone and everything else?
1: And even just how quickly, like, I think, wow, this is obviously crazy wild. An angel, who's a mm-hmm. messenger, comes and gives Mary this word from God, and I try to count that. Like, oh, I don't have to respond like Mary because. My life is not, I've, I've never had that climactic moment where an angel is in my room telling me that I have to do something. Mm-hmm. But in a sense, like, the Bible is the messenger of God to us today. Like, is that even my response when I go through scripture? Mm-hmm. Like, when I read the tough stuff, when I this is the toughest thing that she has ever been told. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. But it's also, like you said, like, there's a lot that's going to come with this that we don't always talk about. Yeah. this yeah. is This is not pleasant. For her,
0: you yeah. know, she's she's got to wrestle with a lot that's about to fall on her as a fourteen or fifteen year old girl, wow. and what's her response like? This should be like right on the tip of our tongue throughout our life. Hey, I am your servant. Do with me whatever you want. Like that's Mary's response, and what you are going to see is God comes to Mary. She's not just your average ordinary girl. The one thing that Mary that we know about Mary is that she loved the Lord and she loved His Word. She was poor. She came from an in- insignificant village. But this, you'll see, she loves the Lord. And she would have known also when the angel comes to her and announces his identity, you know, I'm Gabriel. There's one angel that in the Old Testament is identified by name outside of Satan himself, and that's Gabriel and Gabriel comes to the prophet Daniel, which you know is, is very big on talking about the coming kingdom and the, and the Messiah to come. And when you get to chapter 9 of Daniel, what is you have this angel Gabriel who comes and says that he is going to send the Messiah to do what? Here it is. To put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And then it talks in the next verse, in in verse 25 of that chapter, he gives the timetable for when you could expect the anointed one, the Messiah, to come, and when that Messiah would be, quote, cut off. Uh, In other words, when he's going to die. And so the last time Gabriel showed up, it was to speak through Daniel and to say, this is what the Messiah is coming to do, here's when he's coming. And so you know, he gives this formula, And you start counting it down, and you get right to the time when you should expect to find the Messiah. And here Gabriel shows up to Mary, and it's like, you remember all those promises? You know, that this guy's coming to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring everlasting righteousness, and to anoint anoint the most holy? Yeah, uh, he's going to come through you.
1: Hmm.
0: Big deal. Yeah. Big deal. And so she's like, be it done unto me. Uh, Whatever, I'm in. The redemption of humanity is worth whatever cost I have to bear. So you got to remember, the angel has come and told her that that Elizabeth is six months pregnant, right? And so Mary is six months behind Elizabeth. Verse 39, it says, "...in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah." And so, you know, you're going from Nazareth and Galilee, and you're coming all the way down to Judah. You're talking about probably eighty miles. And it doesn't say that she's she's going with anyone. So this is pretty wild that she's either going with a caravan of people, she's not with Joseph. She's at most three months pregnant at this point. you know, so when when John the Baptist is born, Mary will be three months pregnant. So that's okay. about the stage when you just start showing. And so there's a lot of people who wonder, did she leave because she was like, I'm about to start showing, and I don't know how to deal with this. And huh. I need to go talk to somebody else who knows what I'm walking through. And Elizabeth has this supernatural pregnancy. She's got people who are talking, how in the world is she pregnant? And so she's like, I'm going, I'm going to see my cousin, Elizabeth. So it says she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth—remember, she's this; these, these are godly people— right, mm-hmm. who love the Lord and are, have been hoping and praying for redemption from the get-go. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. So remember, the Holy Spirit would fill this child from the womb, and now the baby's leaping just at the presence of Jesus, even as a, as a you know baby that's about to be born, bouncing around, going bananas in the womb when Jesus gets near, which is just... God, that's such a cool thing, which also total rabbit trail. In our house, we've had one miscarriage, right? And so we had Caleb and Jacob, and then a baby that we were convinced was going to be a girl, we don't know for sure, but was going to be named Lily Grace. And then after Lily Grace miscarriage, we had Leah and Nathan. And so when we talk to our kids, we talk to them that Lily Grace got to heaven before any of us, and that when we go to heaven... That's going to be kind of a fun thing to get to meet Lily Grace, and one of the conversations that always comes up with our kids because they're intuitive and and they're curious, I should say inquisitive. And it's like, how does a baby go to heaven? You know, if you have to, if you have to accept Jesus and you know confess Him with your mouth, you know, and ex- express faith. How do, how in the world does a baby that hasn't even been born yet that doesn't have you know cognitive abilities and decision making skills and all that stuff how do they go to heaven and this is one of those passages that shows you that it's not about necessarily you so you think about you know a, a baby who dies or a child who dies before they can confess faith this shows you that god gives the presence of the spirit to whomever he wants to give the presence of the spirit which is a great comfort for babies and small children or the mentally handicapped The Lord is tremendously merciful. Hmm. And I absolutely expect that when we get to heaven, we will see Lily Grace there. And because I know the nature of my God, you know, and you can bank a lot on the nature of God when you express those hopes. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. So the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed in a loud cry blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb so if you're Catholic that those words leap off the page to you uh, from the Rosary blessed are you among women in other words like you are head and shoulders above all other women and you got to think if you're Mary <laughs> and you're coming and you realize your reputation is about to be absolutely demolished yeah and here you have this woman who's who's the wife of a priest who who gets invited to the temple, and she's super well thought of, and she's looking at you as a young girl yeah. and saying, Mary, let me tell you who you are. You are blessed among women, hmm. and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Verse 43, she's continuing, Elizabeth continues and says... And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And I want you to imagine, as insecure as Mary had to be feeling, wondering all these questions. Now you have Elizabeth is like, how? Why should I be so honored that you, fourteen year old, would choose to come visit me? And Elizabeth is just heaping this encouragement, this kindness, these these praises upon Mary, which you can tell, is going to have a big impact on Mary's heart. She says, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And she's just encouraging Mary's faith. You know, I think Mary probably bailed because she was like, I don't know how to deal with this yet. Hmm. And God in His kindness put Elizabeth right in front of her to say, no, 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 let let me remind you of who you are. You are most blessed among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. I count myself so privileged that someone like you would come to someone like me. And no doubt Mary's showing up thinking, I I just need to hear a word from somebody that I respect, and to have those people that you respect look back at you and go, no, 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 I'm the lucky one. Which, by the way, That's going to be the legacy that happens with John the Baptist and Jesus. So they're two sons. Remember when they come together and John the Baptist is like, whoa, you want me to baptize you? I count myself lucky to be in your presence. I'm not worthy to unstrap your sandals. So that same kind of humility and kindness and encouragement comes from the children as well. How do you think you would have processed this as a 14-year-old? I'm thinking like, You were in my class at
1: 14. I don't think 14-year-old Will should be allowed to process anything.
0: (laughs) But, you know, like if if you'd have gone to your pastor or someone that you really respected when you were going through something and your pastor looked at you and said, Will, I'm so honored and privileged that you came to me. Like, you are going to be a mighty man of God, and I just consider myself blessed that you've come to me with this. Like, you imagine how encouraging that would have been for a 14-year-old to hear that?
1: Yeah, now, she, and this is like it's so beautiful because this is kind of her fuel to get her through the next months. Mm-hmm. Because you're right, she's going back into a hostile environment culturally for who mm-hmm. she is now, and for sure, gonna go through all the Joseph stuff and you know, like all of that. And and you got to think, man, what did she need to hear at this time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, when she shows back up home and she's got the little baby bump going,
0: <laughs> all of this has been fuel that is stored up for her, God's encouragement to give her these words before she had to face all of that. And how you know that it impacted Mary in such a, a tremendous way, right as soon as Elizabeth has said these words to her, she breaks out in song. Mm-hmm. And what's a ama- what shows you the heart of Mary is it doesn't say... And then Mary thought for a moment and went back to the house and read the scriptures and put composed a song and wrote it all down. No, no, no. It's like right then Mary just starts oh. singing, and she breaks out the Magnificat. And what we don't know about the Magnificat, her song is only 10 verses in Luke's gospel, and she's quoting from Genesis, 1 Samuel, Job, and from nine different psalms and the clauses of it. So she has the word of God so stored up in her heart. She is such a woman of faith from the get-go at the age of 14 hmm. that when she hears these encouraging words from Elizabeth that she is the mother of her Lord and all that stuff, Mary just burst into song and on the tip of her tongue, she's quoting from nine or 12, excuse me, 12 different passages of scripture just right out of the tip of her tongue. And so and the magnificat is amazing. And so she just she begins to belt out some of her favorite promises and passages from scripture. This isn't unique to Mary. It's it's like she's what do you call it when you bring different songs together in one a medley. Sure. It's here she's bringing together this biblical medley and she's just praising the Lord. It's like the Mary remix of all, you know, great promises of the Old Testament and right on the tip of her tongue she says, "My soul magnifies the Lord." I love that because there's two different ways that you can magnify something. Sometimes when you think of a, a magnifying glass, what are you? You're trying to take something that's really small, make it bigger, to make it bigger, right? But then there's also a different type of magnification to where you look at something that's just outrageously huge and and expansive. You know, like you think of a telescope looking up in the night sky. Why do you need to magnify it? Because it is so huge and so far away and so. The scale of it, you need to bring and magnify in front of your your eyes because it's so massive. And so when Mary is talking about my soul magnifies the Lord, it's saying God is so expansive, He's so big, and I am trying to get His scope into my sight to understand and rightly grasp how enormous He is. My, it's not like God, she's saying, well, God's pretty small, so my soul needs to magnify Him. It's the other way around. Yeah. He's so massive, and yet my soul is just wanting to take him all in and get perspective on who he is and to amplify him in my heart. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. And it's like she's heard what Elizabeth said, and she believes it. It's like she, she remembers what the angel says, you are favored, and now she believes it. Which, by the way, these promises, they're yours too. Do you believe that? Like, your spirit can rejoice in God, your Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of will, and from now on, all generations will call you favored by God, blessed by God. That's true. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And so here you have this insignificant woman, right? She's, you know, she's a 14-year-old from Galilee, Nazareth. Like, what good comes from Nazareth, the Scripture says. And yet what is she saying? The one who is mighty, the Almighty God has done great things for me. So do I need to look at what I'm doing? No. No. No, the one who's mighty in heaven has done great things for me. Holy is his name. And she's entirely humble in this. Like my humble estate. Listen to all these words that she uses. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. And the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And you can you get this sense, like this is the ethic of the Bible. He he humbles the proud and he exalts the humble. That's one of the ethics that you see again and again. And it's it's pride that keeps you from Christ. It's humility that leads you to wisdom and to the fear of the Lord that leads you to to grab hold of Christ. He has filled the hungry with good things. In other words, this is a God of the underdogs, but he sends the rich away empty, those who think that they are satisfied on their own, that they've got it all figured out. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. So she stays until... John the Baptist is right on the cusp of being born, and she's going to go home with a baby bump, and that is where we will pick up next week. So so one of the things, like we talked about in this episode how John the Baptist is a figure of Elijah, and Jesus actually tells us that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Malachi's promise that Elijah would come as well, right? But this also, like when Gabriel comes to, to Mary— one of the things that he says is, you know, he's going to take the throne of David, right? He is going to he's going to be called the son of David. It's a messianic title. And this is also kind of echoing the pattern that existed before David would become king. Because how does that happen? Well, let's think about it. You have a woman named Hannah. And what is Hannah's big problem when we're first introduced to her in the Bible? She comes, and she is crying outside of the tabernacle, and why is she crying? Because she is barren, right? And so as she's crying, you know, the priest comes up to her and is like, what's wrong with you, Eli? He's like, what's wrong with you? He thinks that she's drunk because she's praying, So and, and she goes away, and she has a child, and she devotes this child to the Lord, which is pretty amazing, and he's going to be trained up by the priest, which means that he is of the tribe of Levi, just like John the Baptist. And so he's going to be trained up in the house of Levi. And as he gets older, what happens? Well, he is going to be the one who comes along, who calls out the wickedness of Israel's priests, which that should sound familiar. That's very much like John the Baptist. He's going to be the one who paves the way for the coming king of Israel, right? Samuel, who is Hannah's child, who was a miracle that was born out of out of barrenness, who's raised up as a Levite, who's, who whose conception was basically brought about by these rabid prayers at the tabernacle, which is what Zechariah was doing at the temple. And so here you have the miraculous birth, and here you have people who are brought up in the Levite, and here you have two prophets that are super notable who are calling out the wickedness of Israel's priestly class, And both of them, Samuel will be the one who anoints David to be the king over Israel, and you'll have John the Baptist who baptizes Jesus, and we're told that that was the beginning of his public ministry. You have these two stories that are very, very similar, and I, I wrote about this in one of the books I wrote. I'm just says, through the faithful prayer of Hannah, God poured out his grace upon the nation of Israel, and Hannah, whose name stems from the Hebrew word for grace, why, does that, why is that significant? What does, what does God tell Zechariah, your child shall be called John, right? Well, that's English. And in the Hebrew, it's Johanan, does that sound familiar? So you hear the Hannah in there, Johanan, oh. it's God is gracious, and so... Hannah literally means grace, you have that correspondence, and though Israel doesn't have a king at the time she offered her son to the Lord, her song of praise revealed her ultimate hope, and she pleaded with the Lord to give strength to his king and to exalt the horn of his anointed. These are all things that Mary will pick up and Zechariah will pick up, as we'll talk about in our next episode. And so Hannah comes out of her barrenness singing praise to God because he is going to bring about the one who will sit on the throne of David in her case, it's literally David, you know? And so one of the things you'll notice, if you take the song of Hannah and you put it next to the song of Mary and the prayer of Zechariah that we'll pick up on next week, there's a lot of repetition in there. And the Bible wants you to understand that just like David came from Samuel's anointing, Jesus is going to come on the heels of John the Baptist preparing the way for him. Fascinating stuff. So like Hannah... The mother of John the Baptist was barren. Like Samuel, John was the son of a Levite priest. When Hannah went to the tabernacle and prayed for a son, we're told that the priest thought that she was drunk because her mouth moved but no words came out. What do you hear there? Who else is who else had a mouth moving with no words coming out? That's going to be the curse on Zechariah, or the, uh, the consequence to Zechariah. So Zechariah John's father struck mute as he prayed burning incense inside the temple both John and Samuel were dedicated to the Lord with Nazarite vows. Both sons confronted the wicked religious leaders of their day, saying that they would not receive salvation. Both Samuel and John were considered great prophets by all the people of Israel, breaking long seasons of silence, prophetic silence that had come through the, the period of Judges. And most importantly, both men were charged with the honor of revealing the coming king of Israel. And so God is laying out this story for people who knew the Old Testament story of how David came along to say a great king of Israel is about to be born.
1: It's pretty, pretty wonderful. I think in all of this, I'm just getting that Christmas is obvious about the birth of Jesus, but God's just care for so many characters in all of this. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of people involved in the birth of Jesus, Mm -hmm. not just Mary and Jesus. Yeah. You know, we're seeing all these people and just his sweet, sweet care for all of these tender people that he loves so much. Mm -hmm. So it's fascinating to me that in this incarnation,
0: it's like he's pulling from Genesis 3, and he's honoring Adam and Eve, and he's pulling yeah. at you know Abraham and Sarah, and the stories of barrenness of the patriarchs, and he's pulling in Hannah and Samuel and David and all of these heroes and the prophets, and it's like at this moment, all of these great stories of the history of Israel are converging to bring about this triumphant fulfillment of all that longing that happens in Christ, and it's like God is weaving it all together. It's just, his sovereignty's amazing, and it only gets more amazing from here. So join us next week as we continue into this series on the Christmas story. God bless. Bye.
1: We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe
0: to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash out of water.